A scripture lesson, just two verses from the letter to the Romans, chapter 10, I'll read verses 12 through 13. This from the Common English Bible. There is no distinction between Jew and Greek because the same Lord is Lord of all, who gives richly to all who call on him. All who call on the Lord's name will be saved. Here ends the reading. May God grant us wisdom and courage for interpretation. As the 1977 song by Eraserhead put it, in heaven, everything is fine. You got your good things, and I've got mine. I wonder if anyone ever started a sermon by quoting Eraserhead. <laughs> In heaven, all will truly live as one, but until that day is fully realized, dear ones, there's much work to be done. Until all the world lives as one, we cannot be content with the way things are, and we don't have to pretend we're all the same or that we're all equal. Things in heaven, well, they're just fine. It's earth that we've been tasked to transform. You've heard it said, this world is not our home, but I say unto you, you see what I'm doing there, pulling one out of Jesus' book, this is the only home we've been guaranteed. Paul says there is no distinction between Jew and Greek because the same Lord is Lord of all. But he's not suggesting we have to pretend that we're all the same. He's saying in God's way of viewing the world, in God's vision, if you will, for the world, everyone is the same without regard to the color of their skin or what country they were born in. Every person is of sacred worth and equal in God's sight. But you see, it's not God's sight or God's vision that we need to fix. God's eyesight is just fine. As people of faith, we're called to transform this world until it aligns with God's world. God's view for this world is a vision of equality, and so we've got our work cut out for us. One of the most dangerous trends I've noted uh, in our society in recent years <laughs> is this trend towards believing that someone with a smartphone and the ability to use Google is the same thing as an expert in any given field. I'm a firm believer that while everyone certainly has an opinion on any range of topics, that some opinions are still more true and valuable than others. And since Jesus said, you shall know the truth and the truth shall set you free, I always see part of true freedom as seeking the truth. And to do it well, we seek truth from sources of genuine expertise and authority. So when I want to know the truth about something scientific, I ask a scientist. And when I want to wrestle with philosophy, I ask a philosopher or a theology, I ask a theologian. Or when I want to seek wisdom and insight on racism, I ask sociologists. Simply put, sociology is the study of the development structure and functioning of human society and is also the study of social problems, one of which is racism. So let's begin by asking the experts for a working definition of racism. I find that most people actually don't have a clear, concise, accurate definition of racism. 
and are actually operating under a definition that is lacking or misguided. So let's turn to the sociologists for a minute, the folks who do this sort of thing for a living. So if you get nothing else from today's sermon, I want to challenge you to memorize this very short definition. Even better, to jot it down on the back side of your bulletin or on your hand or on that significant other's hand sitting next to you, whatever. According to the International Sociological Association, the definition of racism can be summed up in this short, concise equation. I want you to think math for a moment. Racism equals prejudice plus power. Did you hear me? Racism equals prejudice plus power. Can you memorize it? Say it with me. Racism equals prejudice plus power. So here's what I find. Too many people mistake individual acts of prejudice for actual full-blown racism. But it takes more than just an isolated act of prejudice in order for something to be racist, per se. Chances are we have all either been around someone who has said or done something that exhibited a certain racial prejudice before. While it may be a symptom of racism, Acts of prejudice that are isolated from power are not necessarily racist all on their own. It's when there is power flowing in the same direction as this act of prejudice towards the same person or group of people that are on the receiving end of this act of prejudice that it becomes full-blown racism. Now, when power accompanies prejudice, the equation is complete and we know that actual racism is happening. A power can come in the form of laws, but it doesn't have to be just legal. Power can come from a written or unwritten practice within a society or a norm that is socially acceptable, and, and it may never be officially written down anyplace. Power can come when something prejudiced is legitimized by people in authority, for example. Take, for example, a high-ranking government official like the President of the United States. After the Charlottesville incident in 2017 when neo-Nazis, a group of, that founded on hatred and prejudice, were protesting the potential removal of Confederate monuments, and our president, in response to the protest, whether by slip of the tongue or intentional, I don't know, said there were very fine people there on both sides. I spoke out vehemently. I agree there are fine people on both sides, but the danger of this situation is when one begins to legitimize prejudice behavior from a position of authority, we run the risk of having racism become legitimized. And so when a person in a powerful position, be it the president or anywhere else, could be a pastor, could be someone else, um, when a person says something that either condones or at least doesn't speak against something that is prejudiced directly, it becomes problematic. Now the danger is it's just so easy to toss out labels and this is what we've done. You're racist. Uh, or that was racist. You know, that was bad behavior. So we know it was racist because we know racists are all bad. And it was racist, racist, racist. We use that word like it's, it's just blowing up everywhere. And so what that does is just puts everyone's defenses up. But it's the combination of prejudice and power together for something to take on the form of racism. Now, as a side note, for anyone who's tempted to believe the narrative that these Confederate monuments 
like those being protested at Charlottesville and other places, have been constructed strictly as a neutral historical uh, remembrance of our nation's history, and that it's non-racially a non-racially motivated thing. A quick glance at when these various monuments of the Confederacy were erected will tell you otherwise. Because about 70% of the Confederate monuments that stand in our country today were erected in the 20 or 25 years following the Jim Crow laws. You recognize that, what that was? Which were legalizing segregation. So between 1895 and 1915, roughly 70% of these statues were erected by white groups in white neighborhoods, but near the edges of black neighborhoods in an effort to visually reinforce white supremacy. Guess when the other wave of statues like these were erected happened to spike? Guess. Just take a guess. Anybody? The Civil Rights era. This 1960s and early 70s. Now, anyone wants to suggest that there's no racism involved with the erecting of these statues is not looking at when they were erected or who erected these statues or why they erected these statues. Nothing says power like a stone tribute to an army who was fighting primarily for the purpose of keeping slavery legal. Nothing lends a sense of legitimacy to a cause quite like having a statue. I mean, statue, it must be important. So racism equals prejudice plus power. Now I want to share with you five things that I have learned not all that long ago. I don't claim to be an authority on them, but they're five things that have really guided the way that I've come to think about racism, and I hope they'll help you. And these five things are five things that I've not made up, but from the folks who do this for a living. Sociologists are telling us this is kind of common wisdom in how we should begin to think about matters of race. So if you're taking notes, here's number one. It'll keep you on track for knowing when you can eat lunch or dinner later. Number one is that good people can unintentionally say and do racist things. So we have it in our minds that all racist things are racist things that are said or done are done by bad people. It's not the case. Good people say or do racist things. So we're not going to play the blame game here when we think about race. Sometimes even the best people we know can support institutions or practices or norms or laws that have ties to historically prejudiced roots or behaviors. So when we know better, because we're people of faith, we should do better, right? So I want us to challenge this about our way of thinking. It's partisan political bickering that has found its way into the culture wars that go on around us. I have even heard really nice Christian people get caught up in these culture wars. And they say after being told uh, something may have racist overtones, well, I, I'm not all that concerned with political correctness. Now, hang on. If by political correctness we mean partisan, partisan bickering, okay. But if the term political correctness is used to deflect responsibility for words or actions that are actually hurtful to the equality or dignity of another human being, I, I'm just speaking from a Christian perspective here. You're with me? Um, that is not being politically correct. It's called being loving, concerned, caring follower of Jesus, that we care about how another person feels. We care about what we say or do, and if it does hurt someone else or infringe on their human rights, even the least. So here's the thing, we've gotten backwards in our minds, I think. Sociologists tell us that we focused a great deal on our intent. Well, I didn't mean to say that. 
I didn't mean to do that. Are you with me? I didn't know I was doing that. But what we've come to find out, it's not actually the intent that matters the most. And, and this goes right along with our Christian values. It's not the intent. The most important thing is not the intent uh, with our words or even our actions. The most important thing is the impact that our words and actions have on another human being. Impact, if you're keeping notes at home, is greater than intent. And so when someone else tells us that we have hurt them, that hurt, that pain, that impact becomes our responsibility as Christians. And so good people, we can unintentionally say or do racist things, but when we become aware of the impact of our words, the impact of our actions, our non-actions, our inactions, as Christians, we're called to do our best, not just to apologize, but to work our fanny off to never do it again and commit to do better when we know better. So if you're keeping score at home or taking notes, here's point number two of five. That is this. Race is a social construct, but that doesn't mean racism isn't real. Are you with me? A social construct is a category or a perception or an idea created and developed by a society that then is applied to individuals and groups. And so somewhere along the way, we sorted one another and we assigned one another to various races just by looking at skin tone and guessing where our ancestors may have come from and putting each other in other subcategories. But just because there's actually no white race, I mean, technically speaking, and there's no black race or brown race, doesn't mean that racism isn't real. So when we minify, minimize the effects of this sorting process and say things like, and I'm guilty of this, listen, we're all just members of the human race. There's no other race. What we're actually doing is we're ignoring something that has a huge effect on our lives and minimizing it. Usually those kinds of things are only said by folks who have a position of privilege. So here's the thing. For example, we print dollar bills. We mint coins. Have you noticed these things? It's a social construct. It's a social construct for currency. And we assign values to these different bills and coins, and they take on power. And it's why many of us lose sleep sometimes worrying about these coins and bills. And will we have enough to pay the bills this time around? Will we have enough to make it? There's value that we've assigned to these things we've constructed out of thin air. And yet money has a significant bearing on our lives and the ways that we relate to one another. And race is a lot like this, friends. Yes, we made up the labels and we assigned them different values and we won't all be worth the same until there's actual work that goes into it to redo those values within our system of keeping score as human beings until every race really is valued the same. We've done the same thing. We've socially constructed marriage, but great value and great bearing on our lives. We've constructed uh, a whole social construct around fashion. We sort people out. Well, that's a nerd because they have a pocket protector and wear this color shirt. I'll tell you the wrong things. I'm so bad at fashion. Or, you know, this person over here, well, they're straight out of the 1970s with that tie that Reverend Wheeler wore last week. Could you believe that? And so we sort people out with fashion. We do the same thing. Hey, good and evil are social constructs. Who decides what's good? Who decides what's evil? Well, God made it up. Well, sure, but who lives it out? We do. These are all social constructs, but they're real things 
and they have real bearing on real people's lives, so does race. So let's move on to the third of five things that I want to share with you about racism. I hear people saying something like this. Well, red and yellow, black and white, brown, pink, purple in his sight. Jesus loves the little children of the world. Let's not use these labels. Let's just see everyone all the same. And that way we don't have to talk about it that much because we're just all the same. I mean, really. And this is my trouble with saying things like all lives matter. Because colorblindness is the third thing I want to tell you. is actually not going to address or fix racism, the idea of colorblindness. It's a good idea in theory, but what sociologists are telling us is that ignoring racism is not going to deal with it. It's not going to make it go away. Race actually isn't the problem anyway. It's treating people differently based on race that is the problem. And so when we just choose to minimize our differences, we actually miss the chance to celebrate our differences, which are actually a good thing. Aren't you glad everyone in the world isn't like me? I mean, come on. Aren't you glad everyone in the world isn't just like you or that person sitting next to you? What a boring world it would be if we were all the same. And so we don't have to trivialize one another's differences and try to ignore them. We miss the chance to celebrate our differences and actually do real progress in celebrating the goodness of our different races and cultures. Uh, you know, so we can't turn a colorblind eye to everything, not just yet. And for those keeping track, this is the fourth thing I want to share with you about racism. And this actually uh, may come as a shock to you. So before I say it, I want to remind you of that working definition of racism. If you memorized it, say it with me. Racism equals prejudice plus power, which is why number four, this is a tough one for some of us, reverse racism is not a thing. It's not a thing. Now, some of you might be thinking, well, I'm white, and I grew up around some black kids or brown kids, and they certainly picked on me and called me racially motivated names when I was a kid. Now, first of all, as a horrible experience, and, and it's real, but it's not racism. It's racial prejudice. Do you see the difference? Because there are no laws in place that we've been working to reform. There are no norms in place culturally to put you in a continual position of paddling upstream if, you were, if your skin looks something remotely like mine. So that's prejudice. But, and so there, you know, when a brown or black person makes a prejudice comment towards a white person in the United States, they don't have the institutional power to back those comments up. Norms and laws from schools and governments and military and churches and corporations even our justice systems. These norms are evidenced when people with ethnic sounding names have a harder time getting a job interview. Even when they might have the same or even better qualifications than a person with a really boring white sounding name applies for the same job. Or when we see people of color facing harsher prison sentences for the same crimes in comparison to white people who committed the same acts. And acts of prejudice are terrible, no matter who does it, no matter what the color of the skin, but it doesn't have the same effect as racism because of the power part of our equation. Remember our definition. So there is no reverse racism, only acts of prejudice. Those are terrible, but not the same. So this really leads to the fifth and final point that I want to share with you about racism. Racism isn't about individuals only. 
But racism, as we've been discussing, has a great deal to do with institutional power. And all day we've been leaning into this theme, and prejudice, our acts of prejudice are the isolated acts by individuals that might be racially motivated, whether knowingly or unknowingly. But these acts of prejudice alone are not racism. They require what? Power. Institutional power. And so this can really feel overwhelming when you start to realize, my gosh, this thing is much bigger than just what I can handle, what I can fix, what I can contribute to. And so the temptation is just to lock down. Before you lock down, listen to some words from our Jewish spiritual ancestors from the Talmud. Do not be daunted by the enormity of the world's grief. Do justly now. Love mercy now. Walk humbly now. You're not obligated to complete the work but neither are you free to abandon the work. If we really want to live into God's vision for us, as Paul expressed here in the book of Romans when he said, there's no distinction between Jew and Greek because the same Lord is Lord of all, then we need to work on the pain and the practices that have caused this pain and these deep distinctions. So I want to send you out of here with a commitment and a practical step of your own choosing. This is your mission, should you choose to accept it based on the definition we've been using for racism. What is it? Racism equals prejudice plus power. It seems to me that there has to be a more specific commitment than just to leave here and go forth and say, well, I'm, I'm recommitting myself to not be a racist. Simply not being racist actually doesn't really work with a definition of racism. So yes, let's go forth and work on our individual acts of prejudice. We should always be wanting to know better so we can do better. But let's help each other as individuals, sure. But the other part of the equation, the institutional power part, it requires more than just not being racist. It requires being anti-racist. Now let me tell you what I mean with that. If we want to truly impact our world for the sake of human dignity and racial equality, I want to challenge you to become anti-racist. What does this mean? What does being an anti-racist look like? I want to challenge the white folks listening to this sermon to become allies for persons of color. And this means we commit individually to wrestle with our own attitudes, yes, and prejudices, yes. But it also means we become aware of other acts of prejudice, patterns of speech, traditions, norms, laws, and the rest that make for unhealthy, unsensitive, potentially harmful patterns of behavior. But I want to challenge you to go further. Here's what I want you to do. If you can afford it, if, only if, I want you to consider giving financially to a group that who, who historically supports racial justice-related work, if you don't already. I want to encourage you, if you have a passion or you've seen in your life a particular group of people that you want to support, find, find one of these that supports that group or that race, such as the NAACP or the American Arab Anti-Discrimination Committee or the Asian Pacific American Labor Alliance. One of my favorites here in Oklahoma, the Council on American Islamic Relations, or nationally, the Southern Poverty Law Center, or the US Commission on Civil Rights. There are many, many more, but I wanna challenge you to support one or two of these as generously as you can. If you're serious about being anti-racist, they'll get you in the loop with mailings and emails. It'll keep you up to date on what their work is. They'll show you ways to get involved. They'll resource you, and you'll know that you're doing something that is focused on tearing down these systems that are in place. The power comes from the systems. The prejudice gets perpetuated in our individual attitudes 
and actions as well as these systems. I want you to know something. I am proud to be your pastor. This is a church who takes very seriously our discipleship and following the way of Jesus. Jesus was an anti-racist. He broke cultural boundaries. Jesus broke racial barriers. He ate with people who lived on the wrong side of the border, whose religious customs and traditions were different from his own, whose skin was a different color than his own, or anyone who was socially acceptable even in his circle. Jesus spent most of his time with people so that many self-professing Christians today would actually spend most of our time avoiding the people Jesus spent most of his time with, but not this church. You're amazing people. Now, we're far from perfect, but we stand on the shoulders of people within our religious traditions who moved here to Oklahoma to fight slavery, to promote equality, and to work for the vision of a world where everyone truly is treated equally. And by God's grace, we will continue to reject racism along with every evil, injustice, and oppression in whatever forms they may present themselves. These are our baptismal vows. May God grant us courage and grace to live them out. Amen.